Hello and welcome to How Is Today, the podcast aiming to break the silence around grief by showing friends who haven't gone through it how to talk about it, one curious question at a time. Today I'm joined by a special guest, very well known to quite a few of you. He was South African born, but moved to the UK when he was six years old, much to the despair of the future national cricket team. After a hugely successful cricketing career, he joined Sky Sports and became one of the leading voices in cricket, covering major events, including the 2013 Ashes series in England. For all his great many contributions in his career, he was appointed an OBE in 2011, an incredible milestone. I am going to be the target of a lot of envy here when I say hello, Sir Andrew Strauss. Good afternoon, Clemmie. How are you? A great pleasure <laughs> to, to be on this with you. We've just heard about some of your incredible professional achievements, some building blocks to an amazing career. And you're no longer now just Straussy the cricketer, but you are a firm household figure, a position that so many people aspire to be in. And I've heard you say in the past that none of that would have been possible, actually, without the influence of a certain someone in your life. And that certain someone is the person that's inspired this conversation. So, Andrew, Tell me, who is that person to you? <laughs> so uh, that person is Ruth McDonald, who I uh, I married in 2003. You know, the funny thing is when I look back to that time in my life, you know, a, a young guy coming out of university very much with a sort of student attitude to life, which was sort of just dossing my way through. And I was very lucky that I, you know, I managed to find myself as a professional sportsman, but I didn't really know what that word meant, what it meant to be professional, what it meant to really grab that opportunity with both hands. And Ruth was incredibly influential and really, I suppose, firstly, helping me grow up a bit. Secondly, take my profession seriously. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, as as my career developed and I started playing for England, not get wrapped up in my career. You know, there is that thing of, you know, you're playing professional sport, you're representing your country and um, you sort of exist in this little bubble, which is not really real. At the time, you think it's real, but obviously going to exotic places, meeting famous people and whatever and very easy to get wrapped up in that and sort of play the fame game and Ruth is very good at kind of keeping me connected with what was important which was obviously you know herself our kids Sam and Luca as they were growing up and just realizing that you know that world that I was a part of wasn't going to be my world forever which was so important actually you know when I look back at coming out of it and retiring, having a different world to go back into was really important. So, I mean, Ruth helped me in so many different ways. And yeah, I mean, I just, I definitely wouldn't have achieved what I did without her. It's, it's as simple as that. She sounds like an incredible partner and also a um, a brilliant sidekick to go on all of those adventures around the world that you're talking about. You must have had some incredible adventures, just the two of you, before Sam and Luca came on board. <laughs> yeah, well, we did, although... I suppose that one of the real shames was that um, I started playing cricket for England in 2004 and Sam was born in 2005. So we didn't have a lot of time having that international cricket lifestyle, but we did previous to that. So, you know, we had three six month periods where I was playing cricket in England in the summer and then we'd sort of decamp to Australia in the winter. Ruth was from Australia and 
effectively follow the sun around the world and avoid winters, which was a very, very special time, you know, being, being young and free and without responsibilities. And, you know, I, I just remember those days so incredibly fondly. That's wonderful. That definitely sounds like the way that you want to do it. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I never had the, the pleasure of meeting Ruth, but um, from a quick Google search, you see so many wonderful tributes to her and also so many beautiful pictures. She looked radiantly beautiful and I know that from some of the accounts from people that wasn't just an exterior beauty that was an interior beauty as well but obviously as as her husband as as her partner as the father of her kids you would have had this you know infinitely more detailed picture of her can you paint us a bit of that picture and and tell us a bit about how she liked to live her life you're right I mean Ruth Ruth was both beautiful on the outside and the inside she had an incredible presence about her. So, you know, when she walked in a room, people would notice her, not not just because of the way she looked, but she had an incredible sort of air of, of confidence and being at, at ease with herself. And she was incredibly good at connecting with people. So the, the list is as long as my arm of people that she would meet for the first time and they would almost feel like they were sort of intimately connected with her. They were like long lost friends of hers. That's, I think, partly due to the fact that her family, you know, she comes from a, a family in, in country, Victoria and Australia. Both her mum and her dad were involved with social work, you know, very, very sort of empathic. And so Ruth had this thing where she was incredibly driven by the idea of looking out for people. So that that might be people in times of need, that might be people less fortunate than ourselves. And she was incredibly passionate about it. She hated seeing people taken advantage of. And, you know, she, she had us, you know, this is when I was playing cricket for England, we were sort of going and sorting out clothes and stuff for the refugees in Syria and things like that. And so she was driven by that that sense of making the world a better place. But at the same time, she was also quite fierce. She was very protective of of myself and the kids, you know, she, she liked to see herself as a bit of a, a lioness, you know, that thing of very nurturing and motherly, but also incredibly fierce when she was crossed. And so, um, you know, that, that was her in a nutshell, really. And definitely, a, you know, incredibly memorable person, you know, the sort of person, if you, if you did meet her, you would definitely remember her. She would leave her mark on people. She sounds wonderful. And although the loss is most definitely felt so deeply it's also hearing a tribute like that you think of how much impact she will have had when she was alive and how many people still hold her in their memories you know a person like that like you say so memorable there's there's always going to be a mark somewhere yeah I think so and uh, I mean I'm sure this is the case with with anyone who dies, really, you know, there, there are always people that have been touched by them in their lives. And I've had so many people contact me to say, look, you know, Andrew, you didn't know me, but I met Ruth at the kids play school or when she was doing some charity work or whatever, and just wanted to let you know what a difference she made to my life. And, um, you know, that, that that's incredible to have that. And in fact, one of the things that Ruth did before she died is she sort of sent an email to all her friends to say, listen... You know, one thing I'd love you to do is to write your memories of me on a letter or on an email and send them to Andy so that the kids can read that one day. And um, and so all those tributes were incredibly, you know, incredibly powerful to, to read and, and a great memento for, for Ruth's character and I suppose more importantly, her spirit as well. God, I love that idea. That'll be such a special moment when the boys have the time to actually read through all of that. Do you have a 
do you have a time in mind that you you want to present all of that to them or is it something that you're already doing now uh, it's tricky, actually. It's hard to find the right time. I mean, Ruth left the boys a number of notes as well and, you know, birthday cards and whatever. Um, it's just trying to find a time where the kids want to sit in their grief a bit. You know, that that's tricky when life is busy and they're at school and they're with their mates and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I really try and find times when it's either Ruth's birthday or the anniversary of her death or Mother's Day or whatever just to to reconnect with that stuff. I mean, there's so many letters, so it's going to be one of those things that I think the boys will probably have a moment in their lives where maybe they're they're thinking about their mum and whatever. They know the letters are there, so it's just a case of them going and discovering them for themselves, really. Mm. I had something similar with letters, less about memories about my mum, but more letters that she had written throughout her life we found this big stack of them and they were there were letters I think pen pals in France or something and it took me quite a few months after knowing that they were there and knowing what they were to then be in the space to say okay yeah I'm gonna go and I'm gonna have a look through because you're right it, it with something like this with with the grief that you're you're left feeling with for somebody, you know, this absence of love is then turns into something that we call grief, which I know we're going to talk about in a second anyway, but it's, it's about how you carefully carry that and, and allow yourself to have the space to do those sorts of things without feeling overwhelmed. And it's such a difficult balance to, to strike. I wonder whether you've felt that in your life as well. A lot. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely, yeah, especially in the early days after Ruth died, you know, there were times where I really felt like I needed to to sit in my grief and and grieve properly. And that that's not something you can short circuit. You don't know how long that that's going to take, and so you need to find opportunities and times where where you're not feeling stressed or pressured, or you have to be somewhere, and you know you have to be effectively in front of other people. Um, so, you know, in the early days, it was quite hard to control. I think over time, you, you find ways of of being a little bit more proactive about when and how to do it. But it's so important, you know, so important to be able to do that. And um, there's so many things for us to talk about. One of the things that Jenny, our, our sort of grief and loss counsellor that, that Ruth and I both saw, and one of the things she talked about with regards to grieving was this idea of, you know, there's sort of two types of behaviour. There's one where you're sitting in your loss and then there's another type of behavior where you're sort of, she calls it restorative behavior, where you're sort of looking forward and projecting forward to the next stage of your life and accepting that, you know, this incredible figure in your life is gone. And the point she made very strongly to me is if you feel like you're doing too much of one and not the other, then you're out of balance and you've got to try and do a bit more of the other. And I, that, I always felt that was quite an important bit of advice for me. If I felt like I was just, you know, almost pretending that it never happened then I had to sit in the grief for a while and also when I was sitting in the grief for two long periods of time I needed to get up and out and live life and um, I've sort of tried to keep doing that ever since Ruth died well it's just over two years ago now. That's an incredibly interesting thing to hear I mean this podcast and this project is kind of designed for the people who don't know grief the people who this hasn't happened to yet but maybe they have a friend in their life or you know it's going to happen later on. And so one of the things we try and do is make, you know, grief, which feels really unknown and really indescribable. And there's just this, you know, one word for this range of situations, how you kind of, you deconstruct that, how you break that down. So it feels 
accessible and practical. And the way that you just said that is so, it really does that so well because I can see that that model in my own life. There are times where you need to sit and come to terms and almost integrate what's happened into your life. And then the other side is doing something positive with with the memory or doing something positive to to just reframe it, I guess. No, I think that's true. And also, you know, for friends and family who are trying to support someone who's grieving, I suppose the mistake we we often make is if if someone seems like they're they're in a good place mentally and they're cracking on with life and just getting on with things, we feel like they're doing well. And actually, I, I think just what I've just described, what that's telling you is actually if you're doing that without doing the grieving, the sitting and the loss at the same time, then you're not doing well. And likewise, if you're just doing sitting in the loss all the time and never looking ahead at that, what's next for you, what's your life, getting back on your, your your own two feet, then that's not a good place to be either. So it's just a good thing just to keep in mind when when someone is grieving, to so kind of go, you know, do do we feel they've got that balance about right? And if not, you know, that that's the sort of support that you can you can offer for them. Mm. I've also heard you speak about her saying she really wanted to do death well. And it was incredibly important to her that, that that was done properly. I wondered whether you could talk to us a little bit more about what that actually meant for, for you and also for, for Sam and Luca. It's a hard thing. You know, Ruth had a, you know, a rare form of non-smoking lung cancer and she was diagnosed at stage four. So, you know, we knew it was a case of when and not if she was going to succumb to the disease. And at the back of certainly her mind and my mind was always like this moment is coming at some point. And I think my instinct was always to kind of go, well, there's no point in worrying about it now. Let's just live our lives and what will be will be and that that moment will arrive. But let's not spend too much mental energy thinking about it right now. Ruth, on the other hand, sort of very differently. She was like... And, and she said this to me in a sort of, you know, Ruth was very rarely sort of vulnerable, but she, she kind of said to me, look, Andy, I need to go there. I need to know that that we're prepared well for death for that moment. And that means you and I, that we've had the conversations that we need to have, but also that we're, we, we've got the kids as prepared as they possibly can be as well. And then if I feel we're prepared, then I can relax. And I can just get on with enjoying the rest of my life, however long that might be. And so for her, doing death well was, was at number one, getting us prepared. And so that was a, the sort of catalyst for us to go and see Jenny, our counsellor. It meant her, you know, writing things down, doing all that stuff that I've already talked about in terms of, you know, asking friends to write uh, letters to the boys and whatnot. And also for us to go out and have some great shared experiences while she was still well enough to do it. And so we went, you know, various different things. We went to the Northern Lights and we just did little day trips and and whatnot. And then I think for her, the big thing actually, which in hindsight, maybe we didn't appreciate at the time, her big focus was getting back to Australia to see her family before she died. And it was really interesting that she was getting less and less well and she just about, you know, she just was able to get on the flight to Australia. And as soon as she got to Australia, things deteriorated pretty quickly. But, you know, I think on one level or another, she she knew that was the place for her to be when she died, surrounded by her friends and her family in particular and her mum and dad. And um, and so I think that that was doing death well for her. 
Um, and that obviously it means different things to so many people in terms of, you know, what their ambitions are and, and what they they want out of life, etc. But that was it for her. Mm. And so you talked a little bit about the way that you manage manage grief and there's the, the sitting with it and then there's the being the proactive and, and pushing forward. And I totally resonate with what you say about, you know, going through grief, you can't sidestep it. That that thing is coming for you unless you deal with it head on. So in some ways, when I think about what Ruth said about doing death well, I feel like there's an attitude, a behavior shift that we also need with doing grief really well. Because at the same time as, you know, facing death and being comfortable with talking about something that's going to happen to everybody, we also really need to understand that grief is the state that will affect all of the people that have loved this person in their life. And there is a, I think there should be a culture shift for how we do grief well as a society, as families, as friends. What do you think about that? I totally agree with you. You know, I find it staggering that, you know, I've used this analogy a few times, but before someone has their first child, we have all these antenatal classes, which is to sort of prepare you for the birth of a child and therefore, you know, how your life is going to change, never going to be the same again, et cetera, et cetera. And at the other end of life, we don't do any of that stuff. We expect people to go through it on their own. When actually, as you say, everyone who loved that person is going to be affected by that person's death. Also, we're all going to go through it ourselves. You know, without doubt, we're all going to be affected by death in one way, shape or form, including obviously our own. So I, I just baffles me that it's, it's not more of an open conversation and that there's not, I suppose, more accepted social norms as to what grieving is. You know, obviously back in the day, there was it was quite structured, the whole grief process. And, you know, obviously people wearing black for periods of times and very much a, a kind of this is the way society deals with death. And I think what we've moved to over the last hundred years or so is a, is a, a state where we just pretend it doesn't happen. And I, I suppose it's because we're less affected by it. You know, we have less people dying younger and earlier than perhaps we did. And so, yeah, it's just it has become this taboo subject, which we don't know how to deal with. We don't know what to say. We get uncomfortable mentioning it, the, the person's name, all that sort of stuff, which it's to do with us. And, and just because it's not something that we come across enough to be comfortable with. And, and that definitely needs to change. Because by the way, of course, we know that unresolved grief has so many potential damaging consequences for people, you know, whether it's depression or alcoholism or addiction or whatever. If we're not able to resolve our grief in a healthy way, then there are going to be problems associated with that. I totally agree with you. That's the driving force behind this project and this this podcast to open this conversation to get people feeling comfortable enough with the material that we're talking about so that they feel equipped to maybe have a conversation of their own, you know, even if it's just starting that conversation with this phrase, how is today? Because today is, as you know, with grief, it's you know, those days after someone's death and even can you can go up to, you know, it can arrive back at any other point. You know, today is very different to yesterday and tomorrow is completely unpredictable too. So opening it up by saying, how is today? You know, I, I get that this is difficult for you is one way that we we think we could start that. What else do you think would help? I mean, what, how, can we, how can we open up this conversation? How can we change this? 
I, I love what you're doing. I love the podcast. I love the movement and I love the phrase. You know, I, I think you're right. How is today? Because today is potentially very different to you yesterday and will be very different to tomorrow. People will ask you, how, how are you doing? You know, is everything okay? And they were just hoping that you'd say, yeah, I'm fine, actually. Fine, fine. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Yeah. Yep. And they'll go, oh, phew, phew. That, that's that conversation. Open with. Let's, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about the weather or something now. Um, and it's because they don't know what to say. You know, if you say, actually, I'm, I'm really struggling, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling resentful or I'm just really struggling with words that I should have said that I didn't say, whatever it might be, they don't know how to go down that route and and they're worried about saying the wrong thing or offering the wrong advice and whatever. And I know that some people get very upset with people saying the wrong thing. I, I never felt that. I, I just I like the fact that when people are kind of willing to go there with you and and willing to sit in the emotion of it and um just go beneath the surface a bit, which very few people actually did, if I'm honest. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for the fact that you, just because you've had this experience doesn't mean that you're now an expert in it. I mean, while it's while it's happening to you, it's completely chaotic and new and terrifying. And you don't, I mean, you don't know what to say. You don't know what comes next. So there really is, I don't feel like there's that much expectation from from you as a person living with your with your grief at that moment to judge your friends for saying the wrong thing. You know, sometimes someone can put their foot in it, but it's your friend, so you'll forgive them and you might have a momentary kind of, oh, you know, know me better. But later on, when you think in hindsight, you'll think, well, that person bothered to be there. That person bothered to try. So I think that resonates so much stronger than, you know, the don't say anything because you think it's going to be awkward. I don't think anybody will will think that really. I, I certainly felt, I don't I, I mean, I got so many people who, who were lovely and they would, you know, they would leave out meals for us and all that sort of stuff, which was which was lovely and, and thoughtful. But actually, at that time, I think I really felt a need to, and probably actually, I felt a need to connect with someone who'd been through something similar themselves, or certainly had really worthwhile, good advice for me. Because as you say, you're going through this for the first time, you, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what's around the corner. And you don't know whether tomorrow is going to be better than today. And so that's what I craved. I, I craved that sort of um, connection and community and advice, I suppose, which is difficult for people to give if they haven't been through it themselves. Mm. And I think for those friends who haven't gone through it themselves and can't go to that sort of deeper layer with you, I think the the thing that struck me from all of the people that we've spoken to is there's this message of how is today, which is a verbal, hey, I'm checking in with you. How is today? I know that yesterday's different and tomorrow's going to be different. But there's also the kind of the vibe of how is today, which is just being there, being present with people and knowing that it takes a little while to get accustomed to this. I don't know whether you resonate with this, but the first year I was in complete shock. It was only after the first year where people stopped sort of checking in, the dust settled and there was this word closure that kept being banded about that I felt like, okay, hang on, this is real. This is, this is normal now. Totally agree. I, I, yeah. I mean, the shock element, I wasn't expecting the shock. I've got to be honest. I, I was expecting it to be unbelievably painful and that I was going to be in floods of tears all the time and not able to function. And I, I found myself, you know, in the days after Ruth died, obviously organizing the funeral and everything like that. And then getting the boys back from Australia, back to England and getting them back to school and really just, um, 
just carrying on as though nothing had happened and, and feeling kind of really weird about it. Like kind of, hold on, um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of still functioning. How is this the case? And then, I, you know, over time you realise that was that was a shock. Probably where we get a bit out, out of kilter is that people are at their most visible to you during that period and less visible probably when when you are move, going through the grief process, which is a little bit down the track. That's so true. No, I think that's that's bang on because you have the death and then you have the mourning period. And like you were saying before, you have the rituals which help you help move you through all of the things that you need to be doing. Okay, you get the closure because you say goodbye. Your community is, you know, brought into that. They get to say goodbye, but they also get to understand that this has happened. Then they're checking in on you. And then after time moves on and you're kind of on your own and you're on your own with this new normal state, it's a bit yeah, I sometimes liken it to sort of losing an arm or something. The muscle memory doesn't go away of how to catch a ball, but you just realize that you have to learn everything completely differently. Maybe that's more so with losing a parent because they have such a big influence in your life. So you really do need to start learning how to do lots of things for yourself and learn a new state of the world. But it's definitely after that kind of one year, two year, three year mark that it just starts getting really real. And I think really helps to have more of your community kind of pull into that situation yeah and again you know having people two years down the track still prepared to ask how is today you know what i mean because i think there's that feeling like oh, kind of that that moment's passed and that you know they're over it now as you say that closure thing and one of the things that that jenny our counselor has always spoken about is the 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 boys for the boys who were 13 and 10 when ruth died she said it'll hit them at various different stages of their life and it probably not that much in the first year you know it'll be obviously painful in the first year but it'll it'll be things like their last day at school or when they graduate or when they get married or you know all those times which might be 10 15 years from now and and we're no different you know they're going to be moments for us where it just hits you like a a 10 ton truck when you're not expecting it. And so I think for people to remain conscious of the fact that this this process isn't one that just sort of finishes after a certain time. Yeah, I've heard you say that it hit you like a, a 10 ton truck. Definitely empathize with that experience. Do you have, I mean, we all have, when you ask this question to lots of people who this has happened to, they all have sometimes quite funny examples or ridiculous examples of when grief has just literally hit them in the worst moment possible or in just a really surprising way. Do you have, do you have a similar story of, of a time where you really didn't think that you were going to be triggered by something, but then suddenly, I don't know, you're weeping in, in Sainsbury's and thinking, oh my God, how did I get here? You know, I'm quite contained generally. So, you know, I'm not the sort of person that will be incredibly emotional in front of other people. And I think generally I sort of pick my times to to really go there. But, you know, I certainly remember a moment in the car. I was driving the boys somewhere and just one of Ruth's favourite songs came on the, on the radio. And, you know, I started singing it and the boys were singing it in the background or whatever. And it just triggered it for me. And I was just you know, in floods of tears. And you will know, uh, I'm sure that, you know, the, the crying that you do when you're grieving is, is not normal crying. It's coming from so <laughs> deep inside you, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it's a sort of, you know, as you say, it's like a sobbing thing. Um, and I was there sort of dry, <laughs> driving along thinking, I, I can't 
continue driving here i've got to i've got to sort of stop on the side of the road because i can't you know i can't I'm not breathing properly i can't i can't see what i'm doing or whatever you know and of course the the more the boys were sort of patting me on the back or whatever like the, the worse it got in a way um <laughs> you know yeah. and and then they were crying as well i mean it was actually a lovely moment for us all but mm. it, it, at the t- you know just you, you're never expecting or you never know when those moments are going to hit you mm. and i think what's what i found different now is because we've just had mother's day and this is a perfect moment of when i was wasn't really expecting to be sad but suddenly was sad is even even when there's tears involved it doesn't necessarily have to all be awful. Sometimes it's just tears are the appropriate reaction to have for that moment because that person is no longer here. But like I was saying to my boyfriend when I was sort of trying to trying to articulate through the tears, I'm happy I'm crying. I'm happy I'm having this moment. I'm, I feel connected to her. And that memory that you just shared with me really resonates in that way too because the boys are there, they're consoling you, you're consoling them, and she's there with you through the spirit of song, I guess. I think that's another misunderstanding that if, you know, if someone sees someone who's grieving and they're, and they're crying or whatever, that, again, that people feel that's, that's a bad thing. You know, I sort of called those days remembering days. Like they, they were the times where, as you said, I feel really close to Ruth now because I'm remembering all these little things about her and that's what's triggering the emotion. And, um, you know, in some ways... I feel worse when I don't have those days for long periods of time. And so, you know, just accepting that these days come along. And as you say, you know, I I find it hard on the anniversary of her death and her birthday and whatever. And I can feel that sort of tension rising before in the days leading up to it. And it's all sort of subconscious, really. It's not a conscious thing. Just picking up on your point, though, about the anniversaries, the birthdays, all of those moments which um, live you know, in your body, they're subconscious. You don't even have to be thinking about them. You know, you instinctively know these used to be, these used to be things that we, times that we celebrated. I feel like those are the times where it's most useful for your friends and your communities to reach out and say, hey, how is today? Because today is quite obviously, you know, going to be quite a difficult day, more than the other days. And it's, I kind of feel like they're useful markers for other people to, to save because, they're visible. It's how it becomes visible again on, say, a Mother's Day or on Ruth's birthday or wherever. Do you agree with that? Or do you feel like, actually, this is a day for us and we don't really want to hear from other people? Absolutely. And, I, you know, I really appreciate it when people, you know, text me or ring me and say, you know, it's Ruth's birthday today, just thinking of you or, or whatever. I, you know, I think to know that people are st- still looking out for us is important. But I do think there's also just a general thing around people being willing to and wanting to talk about Ruth just whenever. Sometimes they, you know, they won't bring up Ruth in a conversation because they, they're worried about it sort of ruining the day or, or, or you know, triggering emotion or whatever. And I, I've always enjoyed people wanting to speak about Ruth, almost in any context. I think it just because, it, again, it allows me to remember her and, and, and feel more connected to you know, Ruth when she was alive. So so I think that's something for people to remember, like, you know, to to talk about funny things they remember or, you know, great moments or whatever, you know, that that always brings a smile to my face. I totally agree. I love when someone says, 
oh, do you remember that time when your mum did this? Or, oh, that's exactly like what your mum would say. And for that moment, that person's included again and they're sort of semi-alive again because they, you know, you do think about them every single day. So if someone mentions it, it's not bringing it up again. It's just bringing them up in a different way. Yeah, no, totally right. So as we've talked about, grief is the big price for great love something that we all know is going to happen and something that we all sign up for and knowing that with grief every day is different andrew how is today today is not too bad actually you know why because really just because of what we talked about actually to be able to speak about ruth to remember her makes me feel closer to her and so you know i'm feeling a, a sort of lightness about me right now lovely and finally, in the spirit of keeping this conversation going, of um, showing our friends how to talk about grief and to break the silence around something that really doesn't need to be as painful as it sometimes is, who would you like to say how is today to? I would like to say how is today to Benj Pasek. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of How Is Today, the podcast on a mission to break the silence around grief with one curious question at a time. We want you to join us with this mission and join the conversation. So find us on Instagram at How Is Today or online at our website. We want to hear from you. And remember, if your friend has an octopus, don't be scared if you don't know how to talk about it. Just ask a curious question and start with How Is Today. How is Today is produced and edited by Sophie Black.